As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So welcome to the fifth and final episode of our SaaS series. And you may have noticed this is released a little bit behind schedule, and that's my fault. And I wanted to let you know, I am currently in Montreal, so I am recording this in my room in Montreal. I'll be moving here at the end of the month, so we've been looking for places and then also pitching our board on what the future of crew looks like. It has been quite the undertaking, but... I'm here now, so let's get into the episode. Welcome to Rocketship.fm, the podcast where we explore startups from funding to growth, from culture to sales, and everything in between. I'm Michael Saka. I'm Mike Belsito. And I'm Joelle Goldman. So today we're going to talk about scaling SaaS. We're going to look at it from two perspectives, the first being data. So how to use data to your advantage, not get taken advantage of. 
by data. And we're going to look at a talk from Jason Cohen he did for the business of software on how to statistically analyze data so that you're not looking at false positives. How do you separate those false positives from the actual growth that you're, you're seeing in your A-B testing? And then we're going to look at some of the emotional side of scaling. So we're going to break down a talk that Gail Goodman did also for the business software on the long, slow SaaS ramp of death, which is one of my favorite talks on the topic. One of the most important tools that we have as decision makers in a SaaS company is data. We can collect data on literally everything, every click, every eyeball, every time a customer interacts with our site or app, we can collect data on the usage. How do we know when that data is conclusive? How do we know how to pick a winner out of that data? Oftentimes we think it's an A-B test, so it's very simple, whichever gets the most clicks, say. But let's break down an example by Jason Cohen where he shows us how to eliminate false positives in that data to really find what's actually working. And Jason actually gives us a statistically sound yet incredibly simple formula for testing whether or not the A-B tests are conclusive. So because we don't want to wait too long in between tests or we're wasting time. But if we make decisions too soon, then we're making a decision off inconclusive data. And we may just be succumbing to a false positive. So we'll get to the formula in a minute. But first, here's Jason. So when it comes to matters of things like style and perspective and um, creative work, we find that the wisdom of the crowds does exactly the opposite. It cuts away the interesting edges, leaving you with something bad. There is a single, objective, correct answer. Then this can be a useful tool for zeroing in on what that might be. But when it's creative, when it's style, when it's perspective, then I feel like it cuts it away. And in fact, it's interesting. It's not just that it doesn't find the right answer. It actively finds a bad answer. It's destructive. It's worse than almost any other choice you could make when it's something that's creative. And that's an, this is an important point because a lot of times with metrics and optimization techniques, stuff like this, we think, well... I'll just pick, I'll use this technique and, I'll, and whatever it comes up with, I'll pick. It may or may not be statistically significantly better or whatever, but it's better than what I could think of. I'll, I might as well pick it. And this is a good example of why I might as well pick it actually could lead you to a worse decision. So it's not good enough to say I might as well pick it. There has to be something systematic about it. And in particular, this is true of A-B tests, where often you don't see any particular difference and you say, well, screw it, I'll pick the one I like, or screw it, it's beating a, B is beating A by a little, so I'll pick it. This is really destructive. So how do you determine if your A-B test is st- statistically, so how do you determine if your A-B test is statistically significant? So let's take an example. Let's say you were running a test on your homepage. And in a day, there was 110 users that clicked on your call to action. And 60 of them were from test A, and 50 of them were from test B. Now, it wouldn't be unreasonable to say that test A performed better than test B. But should you then eliminate test B and claim that test A is the winner, simply because it got 10 more clicks in that day? So here is a simple formula for you to tell if this is statistically significant. So we're going to define N as the number of trials. So in our case, it's 110. And then we're going to define D as half the difference between the winner 
and the loser. So we're going to take our winner and we're going to minus our loser, and then we're going to divide it by two. So in our case, we're going to take 60 minus 50, which is 10, divided by two, which is five. So in order to determine if this test is statistically significant, we take D, half the diff distance between the winner and the loser, and we multiply it by the power of two. So in our case, it's five to the power of two, which is 25. Now, if D squared is bigger than N, which is the number of trials, in our case, it's 110, then you have run a statistically significant test. In our case, we have not. We need to keep going. So let's say the next day, and really just for the sake of simplicity, we have a slightly slower day, and we get 20 clicks on test A. So now we are at 80 clicks on test A and 50 clicks on test B. If we ran the difference, our D would be 15. 15 squared is 225, and we have run 130 tests. So this would qualify as statistically significant, and we could then determine that test A is the clear winner. So let's take another look where, so let's take another look at an example where data can lead us astray. There's a famous example from Google where inside of Gmail, they wanted more people to click on ads and they ran a test on 41 shades of blue. Here's Jason Cohen again. So what happened here is there's this designer named Doug Bowman and he was Google's chief designer, or maybe it was chief design architect or whatever kind of title means that you get to do the design work for Google, which is pretty sweet actually, sweet gig. And he designed things like Gmail, at least the original Gmail. And uh, in doing Gmail, um, his boss, who you've also probably heard of, Marissa Mayer, she said, um, oh, you know what we need to do is get more people to click those ads in the corner. Because who here clicks ads while they're in Gmail? Yeah, I never met anyone who did, ever. So I'm not sure. So I guess that's why they wanted people to click more. There's certainly a lot of page views, right? So uh, that makes sense, I suppose. So they said, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll test... 41 different shades of blue for the link color for those ads and see if we can get people to click more. Let's see which shade of blue causes them to click. So Doug, being a designer, quits. He was the designer behind Gmail, but ultimately this wasn't the type of design problem that he wanted to be tackling. But Google goes ahead with the experiment anyway. But as Jason points out, there is a huge statistical error here in thinking that they could test the 41 shades of blue in the manner that they did. But I want to show you guys why mathematically Google was wrong, uh, because as you'll see, this is, again, directly impacts you when you guys run A-B tests and you need to avoid this problem just like the other one. So suppose you did the the, just the test of two shades of blue, and indeed one was the winner, and indeed with a at a 95% confidence level, which just means we're 95% sure this is a real result and not a false positive. So there's only a 5% chance that was a false positive. That's pretty good. We'd probably declare one the winner, and rightly so. Okay. But if I ran another test, so that one against this one, and then another test, so I have two tests, either one could have a false positive, right? So the chance of a false positive goes up, now it's 9%. And if I run 10 of these, how many false positives might I, I have all these chances, 5% chances of getting a false positive. There's a 40% chance that I get a false positive. And if with 41 shades of blue, it is almost certain that one of them will show with statistical significance, 
of 95%, almost certain that it will have a false positive, which is exactly what happened. There was a result. So, I mean, I don't know if it was a false positive, but probably. And while many of us are not running the 41 Shades of Blue test, it's relevant because when you're running A-B tests, you may not be running 41 simultaneous A-B tests, but you are running one after another after another. And each one of those tests has a compounding percent of statistical error. And so you could be responding to a false positive, and the more tests that you do, the more likely you may have a false positive that you're chasing. Here's another theory that we did at, at my company, WP Engine, so I can tell you some of the results of this one. And this one's a really common one. We think people will want to watch a movie on the homepage instead of just reading text. And the ones who do will be more engaged and will understand our value proposition, our benefits better, and therefore are more likely to buy. And certainly more likely to look at lots of other pages and get more involved in our website. Good theory, right? So in this particular, I'll just get a little deeper on that one since we did it. So we put a video and we A-B tested having a video and almost no one watched the video and those who did did not buy more frequently. So then we thought, well, we gotta get more people to look at the video. So we put a big play button on it and that helped. And then they did watch the video more and still the people who watched the video were no more likely to, uh, to buy. But we did see that they, were more, they, they spent more time on the website except when we got statistics, uh, uh, data about how long they watched the movie, and the extra time they spent on the site was exactly the amount of time to watch the movie. So they did technically, I suppose, stick around to watch the movie, but it didn't influence anything else interesting afterwards. And we tried other variations and whatnot, and we never got it to work, and that doesn't mean it could never work, but probably it, what it does is have, give us counter evidence to this idea that a movie will help people buy, in our very particular case, right? But this thing about the theory, here's why it's so powerful. Because first I formed the theory about people watch a video are more uh, uh, interested or they know something they didn't know before or they're, they're more interested in buying all this stuff. Since that's invalid, what else does that mean? Are there assumptions we've been making around people's engagement or not? And what they might want to see on other pages and what gets them to buy and what's important about us? Because I had a theory and we weren't just spitballing like video or not video, it allows me to think more deeply and have other ideas about what might in fact be something that's better for the homepage. By the way, we did come up with some different language for the homepage with other theories about what people might want to see. And we got the bounce rate of the homepage down to only 20% even through AdWords, which is pretty cool. In other words, because we had a theory, we knew we were invalidating something. So we knew to come up with other theories. Now, alternately, on the pricing page, often it is a, a good time to start funneling people in. So suppose you had that theory and you did funnel people with stronger headline language, you know, buy now. And suppose it worked. Suppose, now how, again, how do you know it's not 41 shades of blue? Well, you don't quite know it's not yet. But since you've started to validate a theory, you can just go further with that theory. Well, if they want to be squeezed, let's continue to squeeze them. And if you're right about the theory, then very rapidly you can make a lot of additional progress on that pricing page because you're taking a theory all the way in. And that's way more valuable than spitballing where you haven't learned anything. In Lean Startup, all they talk about is learning. Well, here's exactly what that means in practice in a very real way. You haven't learned anything by spitballing, but now you have, so you can put it into practice. And on the other hand, if it turns out to be anomalous, you'll also find out because you'll try to do all this stuff and it won't work. So that's how it gets around the math, but also is, is a much more valuable 
not much more valuable process for you to do anyway. We're going to dive into more right after this word from our sponsor. You know, the, you know, the style that got you through the first stage isn't going to be the style that gets you through the next stage. <laughs> the same is true of the team. And honestly, I had more trouble with that because it was very hard um, to see people who had done so much for the business move on. And this is probably one of the hardest aspects of management and growth, really, because at the beginning, you need some scrappy people who can get things done. And as you scale, you need to be more meticulous. You need to have more attention to detail. You bring in more specialists that do one thing really well. You have to know how to both manage them, motivate them, and also how to delegate. Whereas at the beginning of the company, you do everything. Everybody wears lots of hats. You need people that are willing to wear lots of hats. But as you scale, there's less hats that you wear, but perhaps they're a bit fancier. They're a bit more expensive, and you make sure they fit a little bit better rather than trying to find a hat that works for all situations. So here's a bit more from Gail Goodman, the CEO of Constant Contact, from her talk at the Business of Software on growing with employees. And I could see when the team started to suffer because one of my leaders wasn't making it to the next scaling stage. Yeah. So in the end, I could feel okay about the moves I needed to make because I was doing the right thing for the team. But it's hard and not everybody wants to do it. Yeah. You know, so I remember my first head of engineering who uh, was just fantastic, you know, was love to be so close to the product that his point of view was formed from his personal understanding of the customer, the product need, and the code base. And as we went from one team to two teams to directors reporting to him, he was just really clear that it stopped being fun and started being administrative to him. And I respected that. He knew what he wanted. So let's talk about scaling a bit for a minute. What does it look like when a SaaS company starts to scale? So Gail, in her talk, gives this example of the early days of Constant Contact. So we launched our SaaS solution our cloud, I'm sorry, cloud computing solution, um, in October of 2000. And by April, we had 100 customers. Yay, we popped champagne. But 100 customers, 30 bucks. You doing the math in your head? $3,000, right? That wasn't gonna pay a whole lot of people. By April, by uh, September of that year, we were at 1,000 customers. Right, that's pretty awesome, 100 to 1,000. Now you're going $30,000 a month. Okay, right, we had minimum critical mass, we had about 25 employees. Right, we weren't even close to paying the bills. By the way, we hadn't started doing any marketing yet. Right, so the long, slow SaaS ramp of death is that it just takes a long time to get to minimum critical mass. So we knew our magic number, and we were hyper-focused on getting to that magic number and finding our way to getting there. But what we were actually really planning for, you know, was the hockey stick, right? We are going to find the hockey stick, the inflection point, the magic accelerator of our business. But it was more like a flywheel than a hockey stick. 
It was more like finding something that worked, repeating it, scaling it, finding something else that worked. And what I hear today, and I talk to a lot of startup folks, is that they are counting on, you guys remember the cartoon where there's like an equation on one side and it says, then a miracle occurs? Kind of. They're looking for that, I'll call it silver bullet. But for longtime listeners of the show, you know there is no silver bullet. It's all about the hard work, building, repeating, building, testing. And so for Constant Contact, they were trying to reach small businesses. And they tried all different things to reach them, direct mail. They tried putting software in a box and sticking it on the shelf at Staples. But of course, none of this really worked until they went back and tried to figure out why customers weren't buying from them. But then we started to really understand that the number one reason small businesses weren't doing email marketing was they really didn't understand it. And they weren't confident it would work for their business. And we had this unbelievable, crazy idea of trying to teach them that. And this was really the basics. Like, what is email marketing and why would I do it? What kind of content? How frequently should I send? What should make a good subject line? Like, they needed to know all of that before they were willing to try. And the important thing to take away from this is for each of your customer personas, as you scale, as your product changes, and as your customers potentially change, or you want to reach more and more of them, you need to do the research to figure out why your customer is or isn't buying from you. We have a great episode from the last series with Bob Moesta in our product series on jobs to be done. So that's one of the frameworks that you can use to figure out why people are or aren't purchasing from you. And an exercise like this allows you to open up new avenues of growth. So at Constant Contact, they started doing webinars and they partnered with the chamber and built a webinar team where twice a week they would be doing webinars for 80 to 100 small business owners on what is email marketing and why they need to be doing it. This was an incredibly effective technique that they wouldn't have gotten to without going through the exercise of learning about their customer and what their customer needs. And this is something that you need to do every time you're looking to grow into a new customer segment. If you stay close to your customer, I mean really close to your customer, particularly your early customers, you will begin to have aha moments about sort of things they didn't understand before they started using your software or things you didn't understand that they needed to do. And I think from our earliest days, and maybe we just got a little lucky, you know, we realized that if our customers used our product well, they'd get better results. They got better results. They'd stay longer. So what do those results look like mathematically? So, In the end, it's all about customer economics and scalability. So I'm sure uh, folks have talked to you about kind of knowing your lifetime value. So what's the formula for lifetime value? So I'll start with the very best blog post I've ever seen is uh, David Scott blog post called SAS Metrics, a guide to measuring and improving what matters. So a lot deeper than I'm going to go here. But... You know, here's the, here's the formula, right? You take your average revenue per unit, whatever, your monthly recurring revenue, times retention, 
right? People are always like, how do I know my lifetime? It's one over your attrition rate. It's that simple. So our average monthly attrition is 2.2% a month. So one over 0.022 equals 45 months. That's how you get it. So the math is very, uh, very simple. I once had to prove that formula to a VC on a whiteboard. Really? Anyway. Um, ARPU times retention gives you your lifetime revenue. You take your gross margin. You know, that gives you kind of your lifetime gross margin. You take out your cost of acquisition. And kind of what you have left is what, you know, you have to fund R&D, G&A, and profit. So when we're looking at scaling, what is one of the most important things to keep in mind as we lead a team to scale? Here's Gail Goodman. I would say that I kept having mostly fun all the way through. And I think that's the secret, right? Do what you're great at and do what you have fun doing, you know, and be astute enough to know when what the company needs may not be what you're great at anymore. You, you're tired of adapting. You don't want to do what's necessary, right? But then step aside gracefully. And that could mean from the company, but it could also just mean from very specific tasks. So it could just mean learning how to delegate. It can be hard to hear, but it's one of the most important things we need to grow a business. Well, I hope you'd enjoyed this SaaS series. This is our fifth and final episode, so we are going to be looking forward to our next series on growth, which has been our most requested topic. So we're incredibly excited to get into that. Once again, a big thanks to our sponsor, Chargebee. Chargebee is the easiest way to set up your subscription billing. Go to chargebee.com forward slash rocket ship. Sign up today so you can scale as companies like Soylent have with their subscription billing. Chargebee makes it easy. So go to chargebee.com forward slash rocket ship. Stay tuned. We'll have another episode on Sunday which will be a long-form interview all on SaaS. And then coming up next week, we're going to jump into our growth series. So we hope you look forward to that. Uh, subscribe if you haven't. You can follow us on Twitter at RocketshipFM. You can follow me at Michael Saka. You can follow Mike Belsito at Belsito and Joel at Joel Goldman. All right, we'll see you here in just a couple days.